So in a time, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy <laughs> far, far away, I was landing in California for the first time to do my pastoral internship at Capital Christian Center, and it was sunny and the air was thick with the smell of star jasmine to this day. I still love that smell. We don't have that in Missouri, and I thought, this is a place that I'm going to love. And at the time, Capital Christian Center was one of the largest churches in the nation, and I was just awestruck as I drove up on the campus and huge building and a, a big daycare in the school and even a sports complex, and they had 10,000 people coming in weekly attendance, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students in the youth ministry where I'd be interning. I was absolutely in love with this temporary position, and I was going to absorb as much as I possibly could. I remember walking out of the communications office where all the printing and mail and it was where all the, the, the heartbeat of the church was in the church offices and I walked out into the long hallway that went down to the church nursery and went outside to uh, classroom buildings and on the left was the gym where the youth ministry took place and as I walked out going to take care of some duty within just the first couple days of being on staff. I see this girl, and she is the most beautiful, gorgeous Hispanic girl that I'd ever seen. Her hair was perfectly straight. It looked like 10,000 strands of black silk. Her eyes were so dark brown that they were almost as black as her hair. But it's when she smiled that she became more impossibly beautiful than she was before. And instantly, without hesitation or doubt, my heart said, you are going to marry that girl. Even though all the evidence was to the contrary. One, she didn't know who I was. And once we found out and met each other, she had a boyfriend already. And I had come to California in part to chase a relationship with a girl that I had been pursuing all year long in college, and we had finally just started dating. I would not say that's the beginning of a good relationship with someone else, but we are 15 days from now going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of that dream coming true. I married that other girl that I was dating. and. Um, <laughs> I would like to tell you that there weren't any major obstacles or challenges besides the one I mentioned, but there were. It went really badly before it went well. 
And even after I moved back to California, and I'm going to tell more of this story in the weeks to come, but even after I came back to California, and Lisa and I began dating, and we were engaged, our relationship met a lot of resistance. It might feel like a stretch to use that as a jumping off point for beginning a conversation about moving our faith into a place where we see impossible things happen. Because often we think of impossible things as the most extreme example, the most impossible of all impossible things, but the reality is that was an impossible thing. You see, that's the stuff that matters to us. That's the stuff we care about. Those are the stories that mean something to you and I, our relationships, our marriage, our children, our friendships, our finances, our jobs, our emotional and spiritual and physical health. That's what our life is made up of. So these grand, crazy illustrations of the impossible happening when we think in that grand spiritual term Those really aren't the kind of challenges that we're facing, are they? We're facing things like, I want this thing in my life. This would make my life complete. This would make me happy. I want to marry this girl. This girl I don't know, this girl who's got a boyfriend, this girl who, when my girlfriend finds out I'm pursuing that girl, is going to be probably a little upset, I would imagine. Where I was leaving and going back to Missouri to finish my degree and would probably never see her again after I took a ministry position somewhere else in the nation. The reality is the kind of challenges that I faced and that we faced in making that dream come true and experiencing the fruitfulness of having faith in something that felt very improbable and mostly impossible, that's the kind of stories that you might think of when I talk about what it means to dream, what it means to want or desire something in your heart. In Matthew 17, there's this story where Jesus has been up away with some of his disciples and he's come back down and he's now amongst the rest of his disciples. You don't have to put that up just yet. Um, Where Jesus is now amongst uh, the rest of his disciples and a crowd gathers around him and a man runs up into the middle of the crowd. He falls down on his knees, desperate, and he begs Jesus to help his son. You can tell there's nothing that matters more to this man than this moment. He describes what happens to his son when he's taken over by this demonic presence. He thrashes and shakes violently to the point where the demon causes the boy to throw himself into water to drown him and onto fires to burn him to death. And then the man says something really interesting, as if that's not all very interesting already. The man says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not deliver him. They could not heal him. They could not make him whole. So Jesus turns He commands the demonic presence to leave the boy, and instantly, the Bible says, he's healed. Then, embarrassed and frustrated, maybe a little angry, disappointed, confused, the disciples say, 
Why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we deliver that boy? And Jesus answers in a way that might feel hurtful, but he says this, Matthew 17, 20, you don't have enough faith is the answer to your question. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. So that passage has been spoken, taught, studied, preached, argued about since the words left Jesus' mouth. Um, I don't know that I can add that much to that conversation except to focus on something that I think is important for our conversation. You have some characters in there that I think we can find ourselves identifying with. And maybe the first is the man who cares nothing about anything. He desperately wants only one thing, and that is that his son would be delivered of this torment, that he helplessly stands by why this outside force, which he has no control over, torments his son to the degree where he is physically hurt, violently hurt because of this. And his own faith has been impotent against it. And here the followers of Jesus the disciples themselves are unable, even their faith is impotent to do anything about it. The ones who had listened to every word Jesus had ever spoken, had watched his every move, had witnessed every miracle Jesus ever performed, and yet their faith was insufficient to do anything against this thing. And I wonder if you and I don't think, huh, if the men who followed Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, left their lives, left their families, left their jobs to be students of this master, of this teacher, and studied everything he did and watched every move he made, if they didn't have enough faith, what chance do you and I have to see dreams come true or impossible things happen? And here Jesus said, if you just had the slightest bit of faith, just the smallest bit of faith, you could say to the mountain, move from here to there or there or here or Anywhere. Now, was Jesus literally saying that we could move mountains? I think Jesus was being hyperbolic, obviously, because it made for a great illustration of this immovable thing that had been there for centuries upon centuries upon centuries upon centuries and had never once moved even an inch. And Jesus said, but with just the slightest bit of faith, and that's pretty embarrassing maybe for you and I to think that we don't have the kind of faith Jesus is talking about. And so when we wonder why the hopes and the dreams and the things we put our faith in aren't happening, it may cause us to wonder if we, like the disciples, haven't in some way practiced faith in a way that dilutes it, 
or misuses it or doesn't recognize that we've somehow corrupted it or... So I wear a um, tungsten ring that, uh, with some koa wood that we got when we took a trip to Hawaii. And I've heard you should not wear tungsten because if it gets crushed on your finger, they have to cut your finger off because only diamonds can cut through tungsten and that's only if the metal hasn't cured by then. So I like living dangerously and wearing a tungsten ring. Um, it's because after I lost weight, the gold ring that I had that was a replacement ring, it wasn't the ring that we uh, exchanged when we got married, um, it was just too big and I didn't want to get it sized and I just put it in a little thing and just left it there. And it sat there for years and years and years. And I know we, we bought it at Sam's Club, so I knew it wasn't worth that much. And, and I thought, I'm just going to get money for it. it. Might as well, I'd rather have money in my pocket than a ring in a drawer, right? So I took it down to the place in downtown Lincoln and they weighed it and they put it on this little thing that tests the density and measures it and they scraped it and they did the little acid test and to, to determine. And he said, okay, well, it's probably not going to be what you paid for it. And he gave me this really, like, pretty disappointing number. And what I realized was on this 14-carat gold ring was that it was mixed with a bunch of other metals that made it strong and made it uh, to be able to be shaped and, and, and it didn't make it this highly precious ring. It was just a metal ring with gold mixed in. And it didn't have the worth that I was hoping it did. And I wonder if our faith isn't as Jesus described in some way, so mixed in with so much else that it really doesn't have. You see, because if it was all 14 karat gold, I would have gotten thousands because I sat in the car and I looked up how much is gold per troy ounce. It was like $2,000 per ounce. And I thought, I'm not a scale but this is ounce, this is ounces maybe. I'm going to be a wealthy man. I've cashed, I bought it cheap at Sam's, I waited, I held on to it, and now I'm cashing in. And uh, no, it didn't work like that at all. <laughs> and so what happens is, what was possible for Jesus was still impossible for his own disciples. Something that was seemingly impossible clearly wasn't. It became possible with Jesus. And Jesus said, though, you could do this. You could do crazy things like a move a mountain from here to there. Nothing would be impossible if you had the right faith. And for the next today and three more weeks, we'll have a conversation about what that looks like. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the journey we're on as a church. But let's talk about dreams a little bit more and so that you can breathe easy. There's just two points today. And so that you can set your expectations, that means nothing as far as how long I'll speak. 
If I let myself dream of impossible things, number one, I have to put my trust in better places. If I'm going to dream of impossible things, I have to put my trust in possible places. So, listen, if you um, talk to anyone west of Nevada or east of Nevada, you're going to find that they know very little about California other than a handful of things. They're going to think uh, that we all live near a beach, that we were all born on surfboards and not on hospital beds, right? That we all have stringy, blonde, sun-bleached hair, and that, um, you know, we live in a beach culture. They're going to, of course, think that we all bump into celebrities because we're all close to Hollywood and that um, we're all extras in movies, right? And somehow uh, we're just teeming with uh, celebrities, and if you're not a celebrity, you probably are on a celebrity diet of some sort. We're all vegans, we're all cleansing, we're all juicing, right? We're definitely all gluten-free, and we, of course, drive to the health food store in our Prius or our Tesla or our corn oil-fueled car, <laughs> because after we leave the gym, we're on our way to a protest, to fight global warming, which is, of course, endangering the El Segundo blue butterfly that's on the protected list that um, we, won't, uh, we won't build a homeless shelter or a hospital in that place because there's one butterfly holding out. And um, one thing they won't think of, though, is that we are the largest agricultural state in the entire country with 26 million acres of farmland, and that we produce more almonds, pistachios, walnuts, strawberries, and grapes than anyone else. And we are one of the largest producers of lettuce, tomatoes, broccolis, broccolis, plural, of course, and carrots. <laughs> now, you might think, what in the world does that have to do <laughs> with anything that we're talking about? Let me read to you Genesis 8.22. As long as the earth endures, nothing will put a stop to planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Okay, what does that mean? It means that a lot of things in the world change from generation to generation. There's going to be technology advancement. There's going to be learning and gaining of knowledge, and things will change because of that. And there's going to be shifting politics from one era to the next. And there's going to be fads and trends, and there's going to be differences in the way one uh, culture lives to another culture. There's always going to be something changing, but there are certain things that for as long as the earth is in existence, will never change. There's always going to be a day and a night. It's always going to be hot and cold. And there's always going to be this eternal principle of planting a seed and getting something back from that planting. That doesn't change because no matter how we harvest that produce, I mean, the reality is if you've driven through California, you see that Strawberries are still picked the same way they were picked thousands of years ago, by hand, back-breaking work. 
hand by hand, putting them straight into the little bushels and putting them into a cart that goes to a truck and goes to a store, but then you see these multi-million dollar agricultural machines that do, uh, if you've ever seen a nut farm, you see this thing that drives up and it goes around and hugs this tree and then it vibrates it and shakes it violently and all the thousands of nuts fall out and go into this thing. But can I tell you that it started with a seed going into the ground? It always starts with, we can't get away from, all of that is produced first from a seed. So for you and I to understand that when we talk about seeds, you don't have to be a farmer. Now Jesus, when he would teach, he was teaching at a time, first century AD in Judea, which is now uh, part of Jerusalem and, and uh, um, uh, 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 what? Yeah, I don't know either. All right. So it's <laughs> uh, that at the time, literally one Palestine, 100%. Thank God it didn't come to me at two in the morning. I was like, Palestine, I need to tell everyone it was Palestine. Um, that 100% of the people he was speaking with were farmers in some capacity. Every one of them grew their food. Every one of them in some way understood the principle of putting a seed in the ground and needing to nurture that seed until it produced something that would become fruitfulness for them later. 100%. But even you and I, with this kind of knowledge, understand that everything we eat, produce and nuts and berries and and, and, and fruit and vegetables, all of it starts with a seed. So Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 says this, What is faith? It's the confident assurance. And, and I, I always have a hard time picking what translation because they're all really, really good and say something really, really uh, differently that I love. But I, I like this one. What is faith? It's the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. It's the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we can't see it up ahead. You can never please God without faith, without depending on Him. It's as if those two things are synonymous. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that there is a God and that He rewards those who sincerely look for Him. So why then, after planting all the seeds that we have planted and putting faith in the things that we've put faith in, do we find ourselves in our journey frustrated, disappointed, embarrassed that we believed? Why don't the things we plant come to fruition? And here's the answer that I don't know that maybe we think about before we plant our seed is that where we plant the seed is more important than the seed itself. What you want, the desire of your heart, I think that is important, but where you plant that is more important. Because if you plant it in bad soil, it doesn't matter how good the seed is. If you simply plant it in the wrong soil, do you know that farmers will leave their ground dormant for years at a time because the crops that they had previously 
have depleted that ground of the nutrients that the next crop will need. And so it must lay dormant. So to go back and try to plant more seed there at the wrong time, that's the wrong soil. That soil can't give, can't produce what you need it to. Listen to Proverbs 3, 4 through 6. It says, if you want favor with both God and man, if you want to be able to ask God something and know that you have his favor in receiving it, and with man where all of the things we care about play out, and a reputation for good judgment and common sense because you don't want to jump out of a plane without a parachute and go, trust in you, Lord, all my faith is in you. You better be praying for someone to be down there with a net who goes, that's one stupid person, right? For good reputation and common sense, then, then, here's what you have to do, trust the Lord completely. Don't ever trust yourself. Here's what this says is that we dilute and contaminate our faith because what is trust It's the confidence, it's the hope, it's the belief that we contaminate with putting some of that on us. Then trust the Lord completely. Don't trust yourself in everything you do. Put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. This is right out of the farmer's almanac. It is where we place our faith. In God, in God alone. In God every time. In God always. Does it feel like sometimes we only trust God when we've run out of other soil to try? That God comes into the picture after we've trusted ourselves, we've trusted our finances, we've trusted our in-laws, we've trusted some advice from a friend at work, we've trusted our spouse, we've trusted virtually everything, and then when it feels impossible, then we call in God and say, Lord, I've got the impossible thing for you. But it says, trust God first and always. Trust the Lord first and never, ever yourself. And if you can't trust yourself, then that means don't trust others with the desires of your hearts and the dreams and the things that are impossible. Listen to Psalm 37.4. It says, find your delight in the Lord, then he will give you everything your heart really wants. Leave that there for just a second. When it says, find your delight in the Lord, the verse prior to that says that God rewards faith and obedience to him. I've said this a million times, mostly right as we're beginning to give God our tithes and offerings, that God always rewards obedience, never rewards disobedience. Any of you that have been a parent for any length of time, you know that you will destroy your child. You will raise them into some sort of monster that everyone else is going to have to deal with if you reward bad behavior. And so this says that the key to getting God to give us everything we want is to simply find happiness in obedience to Him 
and faith in him. You don't think that God loves when we trust him? You don't think that God loves that we live within the, 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 the guardrails, the safety parameters that God puts around our lives, not so that he can control us, not so that he can suppress joy and fun and happiness and experiencing the best of life, but so that we don't veer off into the ditch so that it won't crash into a disappointment, a failure, a sin that will wreck us, wound us, hurt us, even kill us. It says, find joy in trusting God and find joy in obeying God. So plant the seeds from the soil from which they came. Faith comes from God and it's returned back to God. And number two is this, quickly, I have to create, if I let myself dream of impossible things, I have to create the spaces where only the best things can grow. So Jesus was a part of an agrarian culture. And in speaking to a crowd, they understood not only what Jesus was talking about, but more importantly, they saw themselves as the character whom Jesus was talking about. The one who was struggling to get back from the ground what they put into it. The one who understood that unless this happened, they weren't going to eat. They wouldn't have produce, agriculture to trade and to sell. Their lives, their very lives depended on whether that seed came to fruition or not. I will tell you that I think one of the greatest disadvantages for the Western church is that we don't want enough. I mean, really want. I mean, want to eat that day. Want that our kids won't die of a terrible disease that has a simple treatment, but we can't afford it. Like as I walked the dirt paths in Uganda, and asked the pastor there, why do so many people die of malaria? It's treatable. Medicine is only $7 to prevent malaria. But that's a week's income for that entire family. Where children walk the street with open wounds on their foot that had been infected and no parent to be found because they had died of malaria or AIDS exposure, something else that could have easily been treated, but nobody there to treat them. And yet I found their faith to be incredibly pure, incredibly whole, incredibly joyful. It's as if they believed that their life depended on God. And I wonder if our faith wouldn't be better if our lives didn't depend on it. So this is what it says in Matthew 13, 1 through 8, as Jesus is giving this farming analogy. That same day, Jesus left the house and sat by the Sea of Galilee, and large crowds, as they would, gathered around him. So he got into a boat so that he could have some distance. They wouldn't press up on him. He could speak to the whole crowd. Got into the boat and sat down, and the people stood on the shore, and then he told them many things using stories. He said, a farmer went out to plant his seed. Again, every person in that crowd thought of themselves in the field, maybe even that morning. 
And he scattered the seed on the ground, and some seed fell on a path. The birds came and ate it up, and some seed fell on rocky places where there wasn't much soil. And the plants came up quickly because the soil wasn't deep, shallow roots. And when the sun came up, it burned the plants, and they dried up because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and crowded out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It produced a crop 160 or 30 times more than what was planted. A little later, Jesus gathers his disciples and he gives them all the spiritual implications of that. That the cares of the world and that the enemy comes and all of the different ways. But you don't really have to be a farmer. You don't have to be that smart to understand some pretty simple things that the soil you put good seed into, other things are going to affect that if it's not guarded, protected, if it's not intentional, if you didn't make a space. Some of you guys, you're, 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 you're gardeners. You're not farmers, I would say. Some of you might be farmers, I don't know. Um, but some of you are gardeners because I see your Facebook and Instagram posts of your 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 little gardens, and some of you have big gardens, and, and I envy you because I love garden-grown tomatoes. I grew up in St. Louis, and just about every house, you would just drive down the Main Street Telegraph, and on the side of the road, there'd be signs, tomatoes for sale, and every house seemed to grow them, and I would love stopping. Even as a teenager, I'd stop and get these giant, and they were so dark red, they almost looked purple, and I'd slice it open, the whole room would fill up with the smell of tomatoes, and, and I would just take a plate and just salt them and eat tomatoes, and then cry all night long from the heartburn. Is, um... <laughs> so I envy you because a lot of you grow tomatoes and berries and all kinds of things, and you understand that that has to be protected. That, that there are birds, by the way, who will come and they eat seed. They don't know and don't care that you put that seed there for a reason. And even as things begin to grow, there's deer and, and, and varmints. I don't know what other animals live around here that uh, love to eat those things. And you know that poorly prepared soil... Soil that's too hard or too full of rock, it's not going to yield a return for you. Jesus was saying that you have to make a place for seed to take root. You can't leave it to chance. The only seed that made its way into full fruition 160 or 30 times was the seed that went into good ground. The rest of it wasn't guarded, wasn't thoughtfully prepared, wasn't thoughtfully planted. It wasn't nurtured, fertilized, watered, or given the space to grow. And here's how Jesus says it in John 15, 5 through 8, and this is what we'll close on. I am the vine. Jesus always with his agricultural analogies. I'm the vine. You are the branches. I'm, I'm the trunk I'm what's rooted. You, when you are joined with me and I with you, the, rela- the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. 
Jesus is describing the way in which you and I become successful. And here's what he says, separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is deadwood, gathered up and thrown onto a bonfire. If you make yourselves at home with me and listen, my words are at home in you. You can be sure whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. Here's what Jesus says. When you and I have a relationship and you know me because my words are natural, they're organic, they're planted deep inside of you, then you begin to think with a mind that thinks of faith, that thinks of trust, that thinks of confidence, that thinks of hope, that doesn't play out every other scenario first, that doesn't try every other thing before it tries me. It always goes to God the Father, believes Him first, believes the best of Him that God wants to answer your prayers, that God's listening to your prayers, that God wants to see your hopes and dream comes true. Delight yourself in the Lord. Then He'll give you the desires of your heart. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these things shall be added unto you. My brethren, I pray that you would prosper in all things and be in good health, just as your soul prosper. God wants your health. God wants your prosperity. God wants you to receive blessing. But more than anything, God wants to know you intimately and for you to trust him intimately for the soil of your heart to be enriched and tilled up with the trust, the blades of trust that disrupt other seeds that you've planted there, seeds of trust in yourself, seeds of trust in money, seeds of trust in a future you don't know about yet, seeds of trust in everything else but God, he wants to come in and disrupt all of that, turn that soil into trust for him. So that that is a space where good seed falls into good ground and produces 160, 30-fold of what was planted You see, God doesn't want you to just have enough. God doesn't want you to just get by. When Jesus fed the 5,000, really it was 10,000, when Jesus fed thousands and thousands of people with a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread, you know what happened? There were bushelfuls left over. Bushelfuls left over. Jesus is either bad at math or Jesus was making a point. I don't want to just meet your needs. I want to meet them abundantly. But listen, It requires that you and I understand what we hold in our hand, that we have faith. We may think it's precious, we may think it's pure, but the kind of faith that has failed us in the past is the kind of faith that those disciples used possibly in themselves, possibly in the flowery production of prayer as they prayed over this demon-possessed boy. Whatever it is they placed their trust in, it wasn't pure. It failed. And I think Jesus was saying, I mean, look at a mustard seed if it was just that little, but lacked doubt, lacked contamination, lacked mixture of all the things that you've put into it to sort of stimulate it to do something it was never meant to do. If it was just faith, just faith in God. The impossibility of moving this mountain. And we always like to think Jesus was like, you could take this mountain and throw it a thousand miles away. If I could move that screen, I'm like, watch, I'm going to pray that that screen is moved. And I just prayed, and the screen moved six inches. Wouldn't you be equally impressed? 
You'd run behind there and make sure there wasn't some of the teenagers back there <laughs> moving it for me. Good sermon illustration, Pastor Chris. Or if I could move chairs off the end of the aisles just an inch. You see, sometimes that's all that has to happen. Is God, it's got to move. Something's got to change. And what I've realized is this. That the faith of our leadership, of myself and the rest of the board, is without any real force or strength unless it's matched with the faith of those who sit in this room and those who might not be here today and those who watch online. And so this series is a way of stirring up something in me that I will be honest, I have I've been disappointed at um, at how ineffective and impotent my faith can be. Is Lisa and I went on a long walk last night. I ranted and emoted and whined and complained and felt sorry for myself. And the worst of it is, is that if I was talking to me, I would have all the right responses. Whiny, defeated, discouraged Chris, I would have smacked across the face and get your crap together, man. Pull it together. You're leading a church and you're supposed to be leading in faith and you can't even get your own faith in order. And that, that is what Jesus is talking about. If you just had the faith of a mustard seed, this would happen. And so I'm hoping that as I preach each week that I can become a true believer and that my skeptical, doubtful, unbelieving nature can be fixed. Like the man who brings his son to Jesus the centurion who says, my son needs to be healed if you can. And Jesus says, if you can. If you'd only believe. And he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. 
I do need for you to come alongside our leadership with faith and trust and obedience to God because there are undoubtedly going to be moments in the weeks to come in which I need to tap on your kitchen window and ask to borrow a cup of faith because I do believe that faith is a currency that can be given and received and exchanged and traded and when mine is struggling yours may be what I have to borrow from but I do believe that where one lacks faith and others prosper in faith, that God will let the aggregate of that faith move him to move mountains. And so I'm asking you this week to pray like you've never prayed before. Pray for us to have favor with God and man because I really do believe that we are on the brink of something, of a mountain moving. And I'd be lying if I didn't want to qualify that with if this isn't the mountain that we're to move. I believe that maybe right behind it is. But either way, we have to walk up to the mountain with the faith to speak to it. With confidence and trust, it's going to be moved. And so whether it's this mountain or the next mountain or the next mountain, they're all going to require our faith. And so I want to encourage you, don't miss one of these messages because you might miss the very thing that stirs in you the faith that makes a difference.